You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have Mr. James Lavish, who's an expert on macroeconomics with a CFA and two decades of institutional investing experience and risk management. During our discussion, we covered the current anomalies happening with the Japanese yield curve control, the challenges facing Europe with the energy shortages, Bitcoin correlation with risk assets, why institutions still haven't adopted Bitcoin and what it'll take, among many other interesting topics. James is a total wealth of knowledge, and I have no doubt you guys are going to really love this conversation. So with that, let's play the intro. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with James Lavish. James, welcome back to the show. I enjoyed our last chat with Greg and the others. It was a blast. And I'm excited to just go one-on-one here with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me back. That was awesome. It was super fun. So we, well, thank you for having me, Preston. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. So when we, were, when we were talking with Greg, we covered this a little bit, which was the Japan piece. And this story just seems to kind of get more interesting by the day, right? It kind of exploded onto, the, onto my radar, you know? And when you asked that question in the first interview or our first podcast, yeah, you said, what are you looking at? Like, what charts are you looking at? And I said, I'm, I'm really watching the yen because this is kind of, this is wild what they're doing. It is wild. And, you know, it's not anything different than they've been doing all along. However, they've diverged from what the Fed is doing so severely now that it has just been like everybody, you're starting to hear people talk about a lot. You know, Luke is talking about it, Lynn is talking about it, you're talking about it, Greg and I are talking about it. It's something that it's like you're watching this slow motion train wreck and there's nothing you can really do except just watch these guys continue this. So for the benefit of your your audience, what's going on is that the Bank of Japan has instituted a policy that just like we've been doing all the way up until this point of quantitative easing, they have said that they're going to keep the 10-year JGBs 0.25%. And they're going to buy every single bond that is offered to keep it at 0.25%. And as you know, as we've talked about before, that puts a tremendous pressure, amount of pressure on their currency. Because if you have investors, other sovereigns who are selling the yen, selling these JGBs, and then they get yen for those, they're going to sell that yen out because they don't want to be holding yen. And of course, the yen just, it's skyrocketed against the dollar, meaning it's a reverse quote in the market. So when it goes from 120 to 130 to one, it's headed to 140, that's a major negative move in the yen. So uh, this is just the release valve, you know, that there's pressure building up and the currency is the release valve. And it's wild how they're just standing there, just swallowing all this debt. I think it was last week, Will Clemente shoots me a text message and it's just mm-hmm. the picture of the JGB 10 year and it had exploded up to exploded 20 basis points uh, up to 0.46%, which, you know, yeah. if, if you're, if you're trying to peg it at 0.25 and it, and it blows up there to, you know, it sells out to 0.45 or 0.46 or whatever it was, mm-hmm. that's a really big deal. And so I pulled up the chart and I mean, 
the every duration mm-hmm. on the yield curve, the 30 year down to the, the one, I think the no, three year, we're all blowing out. In, yeah. Like so on the chart. You, yeah. Yeah. So what th- that's, that's during our market hours, right? Yeah. So that's when their window, their windows close. Yeah. So what you're seeing is that's the swap market. So that's the institutional traders, the hedge funds who are shorting the Japanese bonds because they're, they're expecting that the Bank of Japan is going to have to back away. They can't just keep doing this forever. So they're shorting the bonds and buying the yen against them in that trade. So that's kind of where it gives you, it, it's a little bit scary. And that, that's why I'm watching this every single day and to see what happens outside the trading window, uh, outside the, the Bank of Japan's their, their uh, open market window. And so it gives you an idea how quickly it, this thing will move. And if they, just, if they stepped away and let them trade freely, oh, this is going to a half a percent without even blinking. So since then, you're seeing this happen every day when, they're, when their market is closing. And so I pulled up the chart and I put it in hourly terms so you can see basically when it's blowing out, when it's not open, and then when they're opening and they're buying yeah. to try to peg the they're yields. They're swallowing them in. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it looks like there was a person that, that wrote in the comments on the chart that I posted uh, something like, hey, this, this looks exactly like when something mechanically f- is getting ready to have a, a s- systematic failure. Right, um, right. And, I, and I'm just like, kind of looks exactly like what yeah, it is. yeah. It looks like uh, maybe like um, uh, the, the the tremors before yeah. a like a like when you um, uh, what are they what are the tremors called in before an earthquake? Um, they're uh, they're foreshocks, right? Yeah. So they're kind of yeah. like the foreshocks of this uh, of of this currency that's about to collapse. And it's not funny, actually. It's not. It's terrible. And um, yeah, no, but I, I actually, I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a little bit worried. I like. I like Japan. You know, I've got Japanese friends. It's it's not a good thing. But James, this is the this is the thing for me. There was a book called The Holy Grail of of Economics, written by Doctor Ku, and I remember reading this book, and it's it, it outlines the whole Japanese, you know, QE extravaganza, and it goes through like why it happened, how how was a balance sheet recession, and all this stuff. All the abenomics and all that. Yes. Yeah. And it was it was a really interesting read. But when I was done with it and I got to the end, I was like, nowhere in here does it talk about how any of this gets resolved or solved. Nowhere. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. And that's a crazy thing. So if you look at it now, okay, so for the people who are listening, the Japanese yen that that's spread between the US 10-year treasury and the Japanese 10-year treasury, as that widens, the yen follows that spread. So you can see, you can plot it against it and you can see how the yen just follows it. And so the problem is that we're not loosening anytime soon. We're tightening. We're tightening it. We're hell-bent on tightening into this recession, right? So that's where, that's where we're going and our rates are going higher. So Japan has now taken in, what, $80 billion worth of US dollars worth of yen last week. So they're on track to, do, to, to buy over $300 billion US dollars worth of Japanese government bonds this month in June. And you know, there's a, a, a metric that, they, that nobody's, no sovereign has ever crossed, right? No central bank has ever crossed. 
and that's owning 50% of your own debt. Mm-hmm. And they're, mm-hmm. they're bumping up against it. So they're already at over two, like 228, 230% of debt to GDP. Mm. I mean, mathematically, the answer is there's no solution. Yeah. I mean, there's just, the debt there's has to no, blow up. Right. It has to blow up. So if this blows, so let's pull the thread. So if this starts to blow up and it becomes unmanageable, now the central bankers collectively, right? This isn't just Japan. This is all of them have to step into this with easing. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, there's absolutely, there's going to be contagion, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think I, I tried to burn through some of your questions um, that people posted underneath. Thank you for posting the questions today. Um, and somebody said, well, well, you know, what happens to the end? So you just asked, like, what's the resolution? Well, the resolution, yeah. as you know, is people lose confidence. Sovereigns lose confidence. Investors lose confidence. They stop buying the Japanese bonds. The bond market locks up. Japanese you know, government has to just continued buying them or back away, whatever, whatever happens. And the confidence in the yen just collapses. The yen hyperinflates, right? And what does that do? It's what you just said. There's going to be contagion to other sovereigns and to you know, major, major banks that have exposure to this. It's just, it just, it's the kind of thing that'll have ripples across the world. So one of the things that you and I have talked about, and we're, we're watching pretty closely, I know you are watching too, is Europe. I mean, now we have this thing where Lagarde comes out and says that, well, we have this new tool, right? It's called the anti-fragmentation tool, right? And so they're watching the Italian bonds, their Italian 10 years blow up over 4% yield. And so they have an emergency meeting. They're like, okay, well, so we'll only do QE in Italy. And then everybody else, you're on your own, but we're doing QE in Italy. Oh, and maybe Greece. And if Spain and Portugal pop up, maybe we'll have to do it there too. But they're, Germany, they're in such a well, debacle Germany because will, they've got all the different, yeah. they got all the different countries that are in different debt loads. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I mean, you're, <laughs> your, your kids have. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way to put it. They're living in your basement. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 38, 42 years old. They've run up this massive debt. Some of them are a little bit more responsible than the others, but not really, not by a lot. Not really. <laughs> I mean, not really. Yeah. But then you've got these North, you've got the Northern countries, you've got the responsible parties mm-hmm. who are going to have to take care of them. You yeah. Know? And I, that does, that's a recipe again for disaster, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to, to say the least. It's going to be interesting. And, it, and it's, you know, I'm sitting here laughing. It's kind of a nervous laugh. It's not, it's, it's super serious. I've never seen, I've never seen anything like this. You know, people are asking like, well, is this, is this like 1970s? Is it like 1940? Is it, is it like the great financial crisis? Like, nope. Yeah. Nope. I don't think it's like any of them. I know that it's a little bit more like 1940 because of the, you know, yeah. the kind of lockdown from the world war and the supply chain issues and inflation, but this is something we've never it's seen. Be- we've never had debt to GDP like this. Yeah. You've yeah. never had M2 supply and money supply go straight through the roof, right? Well, I don't think you've ever, I don't think you've ever had nations able to kick the can down the road and avoid, avoid economic reality 
for as long as this this long-term cycle has gone. And I think a little bit of that has to do just with with the knowledge that's kind of popped out of the last 80 years and the connectivity and and the internet and the sharing of information has allowed the globe to twist the dials to such perfection to keep this thing quote unquote stable for as long as they have. Yeah. And it, and they're, and they've been kicking this can down the road and they are all doing it in concert. Right. And that's the thing is that they're all doing it together, you know? And I loved your, uh, your, your analogy with, with um, when you were on what Bitcoin did with Peter Mm -hmm. and your analogy with the, the monopoly boards and, and they're, the central bankers from each board are like, all right, you going to, so are you, <laughs> yeah, what are you coordinate. doing? Like, what, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, they have to, because if they don't, the, the, it's going to be mutiny. Mutiny. Exactly. Which it yeah. will eventually be anyways. Right. Because of the yeah. separation of wealth. When I was in college, we, we studied this as like a, and I couldn't relate to it. You know, this is, I mean, I'm going to date myself here, but back in 1990, 1993. <laughs> and, um, and we were studying the separation of wealth in Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really relate to it. I was like, mm-hmm. ah, but you know, it, they're, they, they made so many mistakes. They should, they should have retained a middle class or built up a middle class. And literally at that time, we're destroying our middle class. And so from, from then to now, now that we have virtually no middle class, right? We're just gutting it that we're ending up in the same position. Yeah. We're ending up in it, it, you know, so I wrote a thread a long time ago about uh, why, why you should have Bitcoin as a right to Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yeah. Why, why you should have a Bitcoin, why you should have Bitcoin as a, as a hedge against hyperinflation. I had some P- I had people come on that thread, you know, and kind of laugh it off and say, it never happened in the United States in no way. And well, I, I do believe that the United States would be the last for it to happen to you. That's my belief. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're super fortunate that we're kind of in that position, I believe. I don't know, but I believe that. But if you think it can't happen here, you're, you're kidding yourself. Yes. It can absolutely happen here. Yeah. And it can happen faster than you, than you realize. And do I think it will? No, I don't think it'll happen. Not anytime soon. I hope that we have an, I, I have this hope and this vision of a, an orderly operating system getting put in place and being used and, and working in coordination uh, as a, you know, like a bit like Bitcoin as a reserve asset. And then for us to kind of switch over. But if we have things like they're happening in Japan and in Europe, and you get complete meltdowns, all bets are off the table. Yeah. Every single bet is off the table. People, <clears throat> people in the digital asset space this past two, three weeks have got a taste of how fast contagion and counterparty risk can blow up. Uh, they've, seen the, <clears throat> they've seen the Celsius thing. You saw BlockFi needed and, uh, somebody to give them some, some liquidity. And you saw people who had deposits that got totally locked. And th- yeah. it happened literally at the snap of a finger that all of this kind of came unraveling. And I, I think the, the catalyst was really Luna. It blew up. Then everybody's like, you're seeing who's swimming naked. And then all of a sudden Celsius locks up their clients and then th- 3AC. Does. And so it, it just all 
I think if people look back and be like, well, I just didn't even, it, it happened so fast, I think is what yeah. the common person. Risk, risk happens fast. fast. <laughs> Greg, Greg, Greg Foss's favorite quote. That's and, right. you know, um, and, and I was watching the Luna thing happen. And I thought at the time, naively, I thought, well, it's kind of contained, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, like you just said, everything happened so quickly. It, it's just like 1998 with long-term capital management, yeah. you know, and um, I was sitting there on the desk and I get this call from, uh, from another trader at a hedge fund. At the time I was, I was trading risk arbitrage, trading merger arbitrage, helping manage this book of, you know, of, of tons of positions of, of merger arbitrage. And for your, for your listeners, merger arbitrage is where you, you buy the stock of, of a company that's going to get bought out, whether it's for cash or stock or a combination of cash and stock, it can, it can get super complicated, but you buy the stock that's of the company that's getting bought out and you short the, the stock of the company that's buying them in the right ratio. And you annualize that return and you can, you can capture the spread for the only risk is that the deal falls apart, mm-hmm. right? That's the, that's the risk. The deal falls apart. Mm-hmm. You don't care where the market goes. The market could go up or down. You've, you're kind of hedged out of beta unless somehow the market movement impacts the likelihood of the deal closing, which is unlikely unless the deal is subject to financing. And if see, the deal is subject to financing and the market falls apart, then you, know, you could have issues. But Pause. Pause, because I got to ask you a, qu- a burning question I've got right now. Yeah. And we're coming back to your point here. I'm not going to disrupt yeah. your point. Is, is the Elon Musk deal going to go through? Now that you oh, just said man. that, <laughs> man. the whole time I, you know, I was like, is that going to happen? What, what's, I've, what's got to, I've got to dig into yes it, but no. the, market's telling, the market's telling you no, okay. or that it's right. at least going to get, it's, it's going to get repriced. Okay. That's what- Go back to, right. so, sorry, so, keep going. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, so I'm trading the, yeah. the merger arbitrage. And so we, you're, you're studying- the likelihood of the deal closing. It's all you care about. You don't care where the market goes. Yeah. You, you usually avoid the deals that have, that have uh, financing risk because you don't want to have market risk, right? So anyway, so we have this book of, of deals. I mean, we're in 1998, I want to say, Preston, we're probably, we probably have a half a billion dollar book at that point, mm-hmm. okay, of, of merger deals mm-hmm. in, this, in, this, uh, in this hedge fund. Get this call. And it's a trader in another firm. And he asked, hey, do you guys have any exposure to, to Goldman Sachs? I was like, no. Why? <laughs> Who's asking he's like, why? <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like uh, you've heard what's going on with long-term capital management. I said, yeah, of course. We were watching the spreads yeah. kind of creep out. Anyway, so what had happened is long-term capital management, this hedge fund that's run by, by Nobel Prize winning uh, mathematicians who have created the Black-Scholes theory, the Black-Scholes calculation for the, for the risk of, of options trading, right? So, and so these guys are really smart. I mean, Too super smart, smart Too right? smart, yeah. Smart for their own good. So what they did is they took a billion dollars, they levered it up and borrowed doing swaps and, with every single prime broker and counterparty they could find. They levered this this book up to over $100 billion. So they're like 100 to 1 levered. And what they're doing is they're they're basically short volatility because they're playing interest rate arbitrage, Mm -hmm. which is one of the big things they were doing. And there's a lot of stuff they were doing. That was one of the biggest things they were doing. And a lot of merger arbitrage, a ton of merger arbitrage. Hmm. 
but they weren't just getting at those deals. They were levering up their position. So they have a book of, you know, a, a billion dollars of the merger deals, but they only have a billion dollars of, they only have like a, a hundred million dollars of cash in that book, right? So they're levered so far up and they've done it with swaps and it's just crazy. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. Anyways, these spreads blow out everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And it was. It happened like that because yeah. everybody got a sniff that these guys were going under, and so it wasn't that everybody was selling as much as everybody just backed away and said, "We're not offering liquidity, and we're going to let there be price discovery." And it was madness. I don't know. Do, do you remember this? Do, were you? Uh, I was. I was <clears throat> just coming out of high school at this time. 
but I've studied the yeah. I've studied the book and and talked to various people on the well, show. Well, the long the is, years. yeah, the yeah. long short of it is yeah. what's what's crazy about this is, is this remind this is like I was thinking about it all last week. I was like, this is exactly what happened. These guys took super crazy, stupid risks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They levered way up. You know, they've got this this collateral that is highly volatile that they're levered against, and it you know. Okay, we're not going to get into the mechanics of what happened. Um, you ad nauseum. You can have Mike Alfred on the show. He knows all about it. Right? So just like the spread blew out here, and there were major investment banks that were prime brokers that were going to fail. So they go to the New York Fed and they said, "Look, this is this is so bad that we've got to shore up the markets. We've got to we've got to rescue. You know, we've got to be rescued, or else the the financial markets are going to melt down." So that was the impetus for the real step in of the Fed put. And I think I wrote about this, but the strange thing is though, and the the scary thing is there's no Fed put here in Bitcoin and in crypto. There is only downside to the point where it gets washed out. Whoever is taking too much risk, sorry, you have have the consequences. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. I believe in free and open markets. If you right. make bad decisions, you should lose everything. That's exactly. it. 100%. There's no, there's no creative so, destruction except for in these markets. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you own Bitcoin and you're watching all this happen, I mean, my thing is I'm just holding it. I mean, I haven't sold anything. Exactly. I mean, I'm just holding it. Why? Exactly. Because I think that this is going to swallow up whatever's left. Now, you know, as as these other uh, as these other so called protocols, these um, these securities, they collapse. Well, there is obviously less uh, market cap to go into Bitcoin. So even though Bitcoin's dominance the dominance is going up, you know, it, there's only so far it can go. And you still have a lot of people who have not been wiped out, who have some cash on the side, who are buying some other. You some some cryptos, you've got them buying Ethereum or Solana's been all over the place. So they're they're buying those, thinking that well, especially hedge funds, thinking that that has a high beta to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bitcoin, and so they know two things: those coins have high beta to Bitcoin because that's the stable one, that's a stable asset of the whole group. So of course, it's different in in every way that we can think imaginable, but. That's the first thing they know. The second thing they know is that Bitcoin typically leads risk assets now. It's been doing it for months and months and months, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. as risk comes out of the market, Bitcoin goes down first. As risk comes back into the market, Bitcoin goes up first. So you're levered both ways, right? So they're levering themselves to a recovery as mm-hmm. these things have gotten beaten down, knowing that you know if they don't die, which I don't think they'll die in the cycle, you know, I think they're just going to keep going and they'll, they can make some great money that way. I love how Michael Saylor, <clears throat> I heard him talk about the frequencies of settlement. And he's talking about Bitcoin and how high frequency it is relative to everything else in the marketplace, call it equities, bonds, or whatever. And so when you think of it in, in a mechanical kind of term uh, or a mm-hmm. mechanical kind of way, it makes sense that it should that it should front run the actions of, of everything else. So like if the market has reached max credit expansion and is starting to contract, Bitcoin should lead that. And on the, and on the recovery, on the bounce, Bitcoin should lead that. 
I agree. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's so it, does, it does make sense. It does make sense. At some point, though, it decouples. You know, it does decouple. It's got to get to a certain market cap. It's got to have enough liquidity that it is, it, it's a separate asset class, right? And we're nowhere and so near that right now. Not even close. Right. Yeah, we're not even, not close. even close. Not even close. No. No, well, I mean, it's... Yeah. The the reason that we started going down this path is we were talking about the spillover for Japan. Like if this really gets out of control and they have to step in, I mean, you're literally talking about one of the, the top five uh, central banks on the planet and the currency that that's with it and the debt market that's associated with it. Potentially, I mean, I mean, I don't know how what the probably, yeah, yeah. What what is the probabilities we're at here? Is this really a rare chance, or are we really at the end game as far as? No, uh, I think I think I think it can go a long. I think go for a while. You know, I'm watching it, but I think it can go for a while. I mean, what 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 are the what's the Bank of Japan's choices, right? That so as they, as this pressure builds, they can either scrap the yield curve control entirely, just walk away. They can move the the uh, the peg from twenty five basis points to maybe fifty basis points. You know, is that the next move? You think they're just going to move the peg up, and then all these people that are that are causing causing these these massive gyrations as of the last week, they just kind of disappear for a little bit. I'm not sure, but let, let me just say, let me yeah, let me walk through all of them. Yeah. So then, the other thing they could do is they could they could target a different maturity on the on the curve, right? Yeah. They go to the the, mm. the the five or the seven or the five year, the seven year. Sorry, I I, I try really hard not to talk in 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 <laughs> financial speak. It's hard because it, it's hard sometimes because I know you understand it, mm-hmm. but I know there's a lot of people who don't know these things that are that are Bitcoiners. That listen to your show that don't know some of these things. So I yeah. apologize if I'm doing that. I'll try to I, I try to keep it super simple for people. But so they could target a different point on that yield curve, a different bond to control. Okay, um, or uh, they could another thing they could do is they could try to save themselves by selling U.S. Treasuries, right, and um, and showing it, which they've been doing. I don't know how much they've been actively selling versus how much they're just letting treasuries roll off their, their balance sheet, but they're definitely allowing their treasury, US treasury balances to decrease, which helps them. They get dollars by yen, it helps them support the yen, right? And then the other thing they can do is they could come to an agreement, which is kind of crazy. This would be, a, this would be like global QE, right? Where they come to the US or to another nation and they say, all right, you buy our bonds, okay, and we'll we'll buy yours, and it just we just push the QE, you know, down the road on each other's balance sheets. So it's like in your monopoly game, you know, it's the central banker goes to the other central banker and says, you know, if uh, we'll buy some of those, I, that I'll, yeah. I'll get yeah, I'll give I'll give you know your uh, players hundred bucks each. You give my players hundred bucks each, and then it's not really. QE. And, and you're getting you know, so detached from the representative, the political representatives. They, I mean, they are along for the ride. They are not making any decisions. They, these central bankers are really kind of calling the shots as to everything that's happening within these jurisdictions. Purporting that they're experts on all. Which I don't think, yeah. and, and nobody knows what's going to happen. Clearly their health or their, their food recommendations are 
Exactly. It's they're spot on. So Jesus. all right. Eat your fake meat. So James. What I think what I think they're really doing, and this is the scariest part. I think they're playing chicken with the US Fed. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're waiting. They're, they're watching the US economic numbers closely. We just had a negative GDP print, right? Mm-hmm. And then we get another one next week. If that comes in negative, it signals we are definitely in a recession. Yeah. We're heading down that road, you know. Energy prices are up, food prices are up, stagflation, you know, you're going to have the the unemployment rate start ticking up and then the GDP turns negative. So they're playing chicken and one they're they're trying to hold out to the point where the Fed pauses. And when the Fed pauses, that takes so much pressure off them. Why? We'll go back to what we said at the beginning. The yen follows the spread between the 10-year, the 10-year JGB and the 10-year US Treasury. So if that if that spread stops, then the pressure stops. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, okay, we're okay. Everybody okay? We're okay. Again, it just kicks it down the road, yeah, right? Yeah. But I think, I think that's what they're doing. And they're hoping that we'll have to reverse course by early next year, which at the, at, at the rate we're going. Yeah, it seems like that's, that's, that, that timeline is like it's going to happen. I mean, what do you think? That. Does, that sound, think does that sound plausible? I think it's going to happen sooner than that. I think you're... And, and it's funny because everyone that you hear on CNBC and whoever, they're all saying, oh, yeah, we, we're, we're maybe just starting to get into the recession. They're going to continue to tighten for, and, and they drop this one, years with an S on the end of it. And I'm thinking, yeah. how in the world are you going to do this for, for 12 months? Well, they have a goal. They need to get the rates up high enough that then they have room to back off and ease again. Mm-hmm. So they need to get them up. Yeah. Preston, they've got to get them up to three and a half, four percent minimum. I mean, they've got yeah. to get them up there and they'll do it fast. That's why we had a 75 basis point yeah, hike. They've got to it's, get not because, it's not because they're admitting they were wrong. They're like, oh, dang, we've got to get these up fast because we need these rates to be at a level that we can then back off. Because yeah. what we don't want to do is go negative. I mean, we, we saw what happened. And, and Germany ran negative rates for so long. They, just this last fall, there was over $15 trillion yeah. of negative yielding. Nominal. Negative yielding, not nominal, yeah. Not, yeah. not real yield. Take out inflation. Just real nominal. yield, it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. Everything's negative. <laughs> but yeah, there was, there was, we, don't, we, don't, we, we want to avoid that, right? It's, it's mind-boggling. Has inflation in the U.S. peaked? You're seeing well, a lot a of people one. trying to make that call right now, and I like, I'm just not going to, you know. People have asked me, and I was like, I just don't know. I don't, I don't have anything that signals to me that that that's a very clear answer. Well, I think, I think what we haven't seen is the full effect of energy prices in amen to that other, in in all the in all the things that it affects. Right. So energy, oil prices go up, gas prices go up. I mean, every single delivery is, is more expensive. Every single item that gets moved from one place to another is more expensive. Every single piece of food that's created is more expensive. That's created, you said, this garbage food. Um, <laughs> but uh, every single food, piece of food that's processed, it, it's, it's more expensive. So, I mean, again, you would think that we've reached this point that surely prices must come down. You thought, I mean, look, 
with the, with where the rates are on the mortgage, the thirty year mortgage, and how much pr- home prices have appreciated over the last two years, you you need home prices to come down fifty percent, fifty percent to get the same monthly mortgage yeah. that you got on your house back then, just just two years ago, fifty percent. So surely now here's the problem: the CPI is a super lagging indicator. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's hard to tell where even even if we're starting to see prices come down, you won't you won't see it in the CPI because that's, you know, that's past data. So yeah. it's kind of garbage data. And the Fed has admitted numerous times, you know, Powell has stood up there and he said, We're we're reactionary. We're going with what we've got, you know. Now you and I have heard Target, Walmart, they've they've Target has decreased their earnings estimate by massive amounts because mm-hmm. of the price of shipments, energy, oh, yeah. it's, it's impacting it's them in everything. It's not, this is not them shipping goods from the Target store to the people's houses. This is them getting the goods from distribution facilities to, or overseas from, from China or from India or wherever it's coming from. It's everything. And so I do think the funny thing is I saw in the, uh, in the PMI, right, the manufacturer's index, and the purchasers index, right? In in the PMI, there it, it indicated that the purchasers were worried about supply chains, but um, their inventory levels went up a lot. Yet from, they were from what I had heard or saw, right? So they're front loading Q three Q four, which is where they have all of their like yeah their. their Huge percentage of sales, over fifty percent of sales come in the last quarter. Some of these companies, it's 80 percent, right? Yeah. Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. So the holidays are a massive, massive driver of retail sales. So they when front loaded the, it. When the trend's going up on on the prices of everything, you're incentivized to stockpile inventory, and yeah. and you're worried that you can't get inventory heading into that, yeah, you know, period. So you front load it. So I think I think we're going to see eventually we're going to see a collapse of prices in those places. But here's the problem: those are goods that we don't necessarily need. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are not food. Mm-hmm. It's not rent. It's not energy. You know, it's not your utilities. Like every all those all those are going up. The rent might come down, but if you have a if you have a if you have a, a mortgage rate that is is um, it's not fixed, it's variable. That's gone up. So you're getting hit there. You're getting hit on your gas costs. You're getting hit on your food costs. So you're you're definitely lowering your just your discretionary spending. This, this so, goes this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with with Sailor referring to Bitcoin as high energy money because of the frequency. When we look at food, okay, this is a high frequency good relative to the the junk that they're selling at, at Target or Walmart that you don't need. This is a high frequency, desirable, consumable good that people have to have. So do we not see this thing that I just, you know, slapped a whole bunch of adjectives on? (laughs) Does it, does the price of that not contract and come back down and actually become affordable again? Is that, is that what we're up against? Because I I can only imagine what that supply chain looks like when you're, when you're delivering a high frequency consumable good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm just looking at like 
you know, my wife is is all about having whole foods in the house and not eating mm-hmm. processed crap. And you know, she's constantly going to the supermarket. She's constantly getting these these items that will literally die in three days if if you're not going back to the supermarket and buying more. Super short shelf life, yeah, yeah, like real food. Yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. Same goes but, the fuel, like right. So like, there's a very high frequency good that that people have to have. They have to have gas in their car to drive the work. Right, but there's no solution there for, yeah. for a long time. The problem is we 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 have suffocated the 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 growth of that industry for so long mm-hmm. with certain narratives and with um you know uh, big the, time the the yeah. There's, there's been no incentive to build there. So infrastructure and, is kind of a capacity, you know? So And there's been the Fed takes- put. There's been the Fed put, right? So like anytime they were going to pack in margin, like right now is a perfect chance, James. Yeah. For them to pack in margin so that they can make capital investments into their infrastructure Correct. and their capex. They need, they need, yeah. But exactly. there's, there's. They're not being incentivized to. No. They're being, they're, yeah, they're, 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 who, who in their right mind would, build into an environment that the politicians are saying, oh, we're going to have a windfall tax on you guys. We're going to make sure that your margins aren't too high. We're going to, we're going to make sure that we regulate how much you're pumping and how much you're refining when and where and how. Who in their right mind wants to go into that industry right now? Especially after the last, call it seven years, they've been shellacked Pull, they have not pull, had yeah, free, pull up their 10ks yeah. look at them yeah it's yeah it's exactly not free shellacked. not free cash flow and positive they've been shellacked exactly so it's their it's their time to actually you know solidify their balance sheets and make sure that they're that they're whole going forward yet you've got people that are just career politicians that all they're doing is trying to have the next soundbite to get the to get that margin of vote so they can stay in office so they don't have to go to work. Here's the Fed Chair Powell's quote from today during okay. his you know, conference uh, with, or his, his discussions with Congress. Raising interest rates will not bring down the major drivers of inflation, namely gas prices and food prices. <laughs> so they admitted it. And they, I mean, they know that they... So what do they do? What do they do? They do the best they can to throw up smoke and mirrors and to adjust that CPI in ways that kind of obfuscate the realities of the prices of the goods that people need and they're hurting them the most. How how can people not realize that if you provide a, a gas credit by dropping the price, you know, because this is what they're talking about now. If, if you give a credit of a dollar off on the gas, people will consume more gas than if it was a dollar more, which Correct. drives the price higher because there's less supply in the market. How then? How in the higher world? Demand. Yeah. Do, do people know this? I, I think they and, know this. And they have to, and the best part is that they have to print money to do it. That's right. It's just another, it's just another form of QE. I mean, this is like a, well, yeah. Or, you know, UBI uh, or UBI. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's a, it's a form of UBI. So yeah. I just, yeah, it's crazy. But 
you know, look, when this all started happening back in the beginning of the pandemic, I have a lot of friends who are not in finance and who, you know, when I started talking about how the, the money printing is really actually hurting the little guy, how it's not, you know, yeah. the, the, the Cantillon effect. And I, and I, and I try to explain that to them. They're like, but they need that money. They need that 1200 bucks. Yeah. But it's going to hurt on the back end. Like they're going to, they're going to get hit with inflation. It's going to hurt. And arguments about this. Now it's not that they're not smart. They're smart people. Yeah. But they're not thinking about it the way we are. They're not looking at the like, like we're looking at this stuff every day. What do you do the first thing you wake up in the morning? Yeah. Besides like you know, I absolutely huh? look at charts. <laughs> first thing I do is and I don't look at Bitcoin to see, oh, how's my portfolio doing? I no, look at to no. see if, if there was a systematic shock last night. Yeah. Like, did something come out? Because that's the leading risk indicator right yeah. now. Like what happened last night? You know? So <laughs> that's why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I just go through it. Like I have like 10 or 15 charts always up in my browser and I'm just, I'm yeah. just plowing through each one of them to see what, what the deltas were while I was sleeping. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Here's an interesting one. Bricks Currency Basket. And we're talking about uh, BRICS. This stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. There's talks of them trying to basically stand up their own, I guess you'd call that like a mini SDR of their currencies and their currency basket. And, uh, you know, I I recently did this interview with Pablo Fernandez and he, he made this comment because he's from Argentina and he said, what happens when you really start to get like real inflation, not like 8%, but like double digits, like large double digits. Yeah. yeah. He said people run to a, a stable currency that they can trust. For us, it was the, the dollar. And he says what, what happens is, is because the government's trying to implement all these controls and trying to prevent people from going to the dollar and to use their currency and, and uh, preventing the collapse of the currency, he says what happens is Though that local currency gets shoved into the hands of the consumers, but the producers are desiring the the stable and the one that actually exactly. stores their buying power. <clears throat> and so this it appears like this is the play for these BRICS currencies, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa against the US, the Euro, and the yen. What we've seen, I mean, this is it doesn't surprise me at all. Now, whether or not they're successful, I don't know. I mean, I would expect long-term. I mean, I've said this before. I expect long-term, not in the next two or three years, but long-term, that you have a couple of currencies that are the base currencies of the world. Like U.S. loses its sole status, Mm -hmm. and you have the U.S., uh, Euro kind of collapse into each other and, and some other, the yen. And then you've got the, you know, you've got the Russian China. And this is it. This is the BRICS, you know, the BRICS currency. But why it shouldn't surprise us after what we saw with Russian sanctions and with the you know the United States seizing U.S. Treasury assets owned by foreigners. What? I mean, if you're if you're one of these countries, do you want to be holding U.S. Treasuries? Of course not. That's why they're all selling. That's why the Russia owns none. That's why China's been selling them with abandon. You know, and they all own what we have suddenly realized is actually important, not just our good word that we're going to full faith backed by the US government. Great, but having oil and gold and food and fertilizer and wheat actually matters. 
That's no surprise. They actually does, have something to, to, to stabilize the, the currency with. So does this so, battle, so, you know, and it, it's, when I look at them trying to do this, you know, and I'm trying to look at it very objectively, it makes sense to me that sure. they would, that they would want to do that and enforce yeah. the network effect over to the, their their currencies that they know they're controlling and and they understand whether they're debasing it or not but does this drive a wedge between i mean the split in the world between these these energy producers these fertilizer producers these things that the world has to have i've said this i think multiple times on the show but i think it's it's a very apt example of your body has a bunch of mitochondria that produces the ATP that supplies the energy to your body. If, mm-hmm. if you suddenly lost 30% of them um, in your body, how in the world do you possibly expect to go perform any type of energy consuming demand on your body? I, I, Michael Saylor likes to use the, uh, the bloodletting example before a fight. If you went and forced the person to, to, uh, you know, bleed out 30% of their blood, how in the world are they going to be able to do what they're doing? And so when I look at our global cooperation that's required and you separate the world into, let's just call it NATO currencies and these BRICS currencies, right? Does this battle, because both have something to offer each other, right? Maybe some a little bit more than others. But collectively, both of these parties need each other to get along. I think I don't see a world where these two these two entities like break off and don't coordinate with each other anymore. I think they no, have they, to coordinate together. I think they do have to. So you know, honestly, if you look at the and I was I was looking at this because I I, I saw that somebody asked that um, question in that thread that you posted today. And if you look at the weighted average of the five-year sovereign uh, CDS is the credit default swaps. Yeah. So for your listeners, a credit default swap just is a, uh, it's an it's a insurance instrument that institutional traders use that when they own a bond, they can buy insurance against that bond failing, uh, you know, uh, defaulting. So credit default swap. And so, but the five-year default swaps on, on the BRICS is at least 20 times wider than the CDS for the SDR currencies. Okay. I mean, Russia's rated at 100% to default. They're absolutely defaulting. It's just a question of when, right? Now, of course, we, ha- we have a hand in that, but that's, that's what's happening. So, but I mean, the credit risk will make it hard for people to deal in that currency. So they will absolutely have to back it by hard currency. They'll ha- have to back it by gold. And I think that they would back it by Bitcoin. Now, China is a funny one, right? Because they've banned Bitcoin mining. Of course, there's still mining going on there, which is odd, although maybe not surprising. And I don't, and it, there's a question about how much Bitcoin the, the Chinese government may own. We, nobody knows. So, but if you had something that's backed by energy. gold and Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah, work. energy. Energy, work, oil. Yeah. I mean, like that's, those are, so they could stand it up. They could, but just like to your point is that China needs the United States. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, they don't, they, they certainly don't want us to default. Right. That would be, that would be terrible. 
And I think you can, you can also say that the U S can't go cold Turkey on any of those countries. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. They can talk. They're talking a big game as politicians. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so, but, but look at what's happening in Europe. You know, I mean, they're, they're allowing, they're allowing countries to buy energy from, from Russia and gas because they don't want a problem this, this coming fall and winter of citizens freezing to death because they don't have heat, you know, of course they, they dug their, their own uh, trench there by shutting down the nuclear plants. But, you know, we've put ourselves in a spot where just like you said, we're so interconnected that we are going to have to come to an agreement. And and it almost seems like because there's going to be this battle for, Whose basket of currencies are going to win versus the other? And it's this the the political the political piece, the maneuvering, and all of that. Meanwhile, you got Bitcoin who's just pl- chugging out another block that's c- completely apolitical. And it almost seems well, no. like because of that, it's going to be the only thing that that all those parties can ever agree on. It's almost maddening to sit here and watch the system just try as hard as it can to repel it. It's yeah. maddening because you and I yeah. know how it can fix so many problems. So many we won't problems. get into that. You've heard, people have heard that ad nauseum, but it's almost, it's unnerving to watch. And like, you're seeing it act like this leading risk on asset for so long. It's, it, it can be frustrating. I know it's frustrating for people who've been, who, who are saying, well, that narrative is dead. You know, uh, there was a, there was a remark on, on one of my Twitter threads about, well, it's no longer, it can no longer, and this is by somebody who's very smart that I respect. Um, it's, it, you can no longer claim that it's a um, CDS on sovereigns. Well, but the answer is it's not going to act like a CDS that trades in the open market. You know, it's going to act like a CDS the moment you need it. Yes. Like the moment you need it. If you're Venezuelan, if you're in Lebanon, you know, if you're in the Ukraine, and you need it to get across the border with your net wealth, then you need it. And if you don't have it, your currency is, def- is deflating against Bitcoin so rapidly that you won't get a chance to get it. So the point is that it, 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 it saves you in spots, but we're seeing this. We're, we've seen it play out in real time a number of times. Yeah. Yet the system is still battling against it. Clearly, the market hasn't viewed it through the optic of this insurance policy like you're describing it yet. Why do so many people in traditional finance not understand this? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I can, <laughs> I can tell you from my experience, Preston, I, I, back in 2018, uh, I had some discretionary, cap- discretionary capital uh, I wanted to put to work in something a little bit further out in the risk curve. And, you know, something I hadn't really dug into yet that because I had private equity, you know, obviously on real estate house, um, public equity, uh, you know, and venture capital. Like I want to go a little bit out on the risk curve and do something different. So I had heard about this Bitcoin thing and run up to 20 something thousand, come all the way back down to four or five. And so I did what you do as an institutional investor. I went and asked my traditional technology analysts at the investment banks, hey, what about this Bitcoin thing? And I mean, with, to the T, every single one of them said, it's, it's, it's super speculative. It's just, or it's a scam 
or it's a Ponzi. There's no fundamental value to it. Don't just avoid it at all costs. And of course, made the worst trade of my career, which was avoiding it and not mm. buying it mm. and walked away. Okay. So you have some of that that's been going on all these years. Now it's front and center. Okay. It gets a lot of negative press. We, we see it all the time. You guys are out there trying to battle against it constantly. But the, the problem is institutional investors are they're they're super close-minded because number one, the system's worked for them perfectly. Yeah. I mean, it's been fantastic for most of these guys. They've crushed especially it. fixed income. Crushed, yeah. <laughs> crushed. Yeah. Not this last year. But yeah, the last yeah. the last 10, 15 years have been 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then beyond. Yeah. So, but they they don't they don't need it. Okay. So that's number one. They just don't need it. And so their instinct is, hey, they know that it's, it's, it's disruptive. And so when you hear of disruptive technology and you're in the technology that's going to be disrupted, <laughs> yeah. of course you're going to battle against it. It's your first instinct. You're going to battle against yeah. it, yeah. whether or not you know anything about it. But let's just pretend, okay? Because I do know that there are institutional investors that the, the ones who know it, who are playing it right now, Preston are hedge fund guys. Mm -hmm. The institutional, the true institutions, the ones who, who, who control the massive amounts of capital, right? The, the ones who have that control the hundreds of trillions of dollars in investment assets. These guys are your pension funds, your endowments, your nonprofits. You know, these are sovereigns. They, these, are, these are players that are so big that they, these are the ones who will really move the market. Mm -hmm. Okay. But why have they not done it yet? Well, the problem is it's structurally very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Number one, when you're at a pension fund or an endowment or something, you've got, you've got mandates of what you can do. Okay. Let's say, let's talk about a pension fund. You've got a mandate of in your fund of what you can buy. And it's very, it's tight. You can't just buy, if you're, if you're in a growth stock fund, part of that pension fund and you're the portfolio manager of that of that portfolio you've got a really tight narrow narrow mandate right so but let's pretend that a portfolio manager digs in reads a bitcoin standard okay reads the price of tomorrow jeff booth's awesome book understands the deflationary versus inflationary pressures that are about to collide that are actually colliding right and uh, they, they, they see it, they get it, they understand it, and they see it as a separate asset class and something that is insurance and, and is more like a bond than they've admitted that it should be something they own in their portfolio, even just 1%, yeah. just 1% of their portfolio. Okay. So let's say they get there, they get to the understanding. Well, the first thing they've got to do is get their chief investment officer to buy into it. So they've got to orange pill that guy. Okay. Then they've got to get, if, they, if they're successful there, then they've got to get the investment committee to agree to it in order to adjust their mandate. Okay. So they've got to say, you want to say something? No, I was just going to say, so this is like point one raised to like the, the ninth power. Like yeah, the, the math, exactly. the math, <laughs> the math is exactly. So <laughs> then they get all those guys. So now we're talking about weeks or months of meetings just to get the, those people, the investment people, the, the risk takers, okay. On board. Now you've got to get the risk mitigators on board. 
who are the general counsel and the compliance officer, the chief compliance officer and the compliance committee. So you get the general counsel, the, the chief compliance officer, you've got the compliance committee. Now you want to talk about meetings? Holy mother, like you cannot <laughs> believe what this is like. Okay. So <laughs> then they go through all those meetings. Okay. They finally get everybody understanding it on board. They're all gone on and done their homework and, they, and they, they're on board. They at least get to majority where they can start pushing this through. Well, then they've got to get everything in place. Like who's going to trade it? Is, is the exchange... Is the exchange worthy enough to handle the capital of this pension fund? And is it going to breach any fiduciary duty of this pension fund by using them? That's number one. Then how are they going to settle it? Like who's, 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 going, to, who's going to be their prime broker? Like pension funds don't hold stock certificates in their back office. Yeah. They have a broker who, hold, who holds everything for them. Custodian bank holds everything for them. So who's going to custodian it? And who's got the keys? Are they going to do multi-sig? Like, who's going to be in control of those sig, those uh, those signing devices? Like, how is that going to work? And then get all that done, and you still got to figure out when you're going to market. Like, do you market at midnight London? Do you market at the closed New York Stock Exchange? Like, because it's open twenty four seven. So there's just a litany of of steps you yeah. have to go through. And so, so for the first time, so this is a great thing though, Preston. And it's unfortunate that the, that the price has collapsed here, but I think it's given people a lot of opportunity here. And Big opportunities, why. yeah. So you were around in high school. You got, you, maybe you were, you were in an investment club and you played the uh, dot-com bubble a little bit, right? So, and, you, and you saw how some of these prices, they got released, IPO'd, and just went yeah. tenfold yeah. the first day. Okay, So I, I was sitting on a hedge fund desk at the time, and you know, you would go in. The, so what happens in, in in IPO allocation, you know this, but for the benefit of your listeners, what happens in an IPO allocation as an investment banker or as a hedge fund or a, an investment uh, firm, you ask to be allocated a certain amount of that IPO. You say, we want 100,000 shares. We love this Google thing. We want to own some of it, right? And so the investment bank works with their, their syndicate desk, and they decide who gets what. And back then, it was like, well, who knew who? What kind of favors did you need? How, much, how many commissions did they give us as an investment bank? Have they done a lot of business with it? You know, like, it was ridiculous. Mm. But you'd go in for 100,000 shares, and you're this huge hedge fund, and you get one, two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 shares. That's it. So 1,000 shares of this IPO. But Preston, this thing will go up, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars. You'd make a quarter million dollars without, you know, without even blinking, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so, there's a point to this. So, for the first time, you're sitting in the same seat as those hedge funds if you're yeah. an individual investor, because you don't have to go through all the garbage that the institutions have to go through yep. to buy Bitcoin. You can buy it right now. You know, you don't have to go through all. Isn't that. that crazy? It's just crazy to me that retail actually has the, has the advantage the here. They have the, they have the advantage. advantage and they have the edge. And it just, I mean, it's, it's like. And when they the, come in, when they do come in and oh, they've got, crazy. you know, well, because they don't, they're going to say, I need 1%. They're yeah. not going to say, oh, well, it's trading at $47,000. Wait until it comes back to 42. No, they're going to say, I need 1%. Yeah. Go buy 1%, 1% of my portfolio. Yeah. Sorry. I need 1% of, of my portfolio. I've got, I'm, I'm managing 
you know, a hundred million dollars, I need, you know, a million dollars or a billion dollars need $10 million worth. And if you're just Apple, go buy it. if you're Apple, their balance sheet yeah. is, what, what is their balance it's, sheet now? It's gigantic, gigantic, gigantic. Yeah. Make so, people's head spin. They make people heads. So, and they're just, and that's just one, one company, one pension yeah. fund, Yeah, you know? And when these guys come in, so I actually wrote this down somewhere here, Preston. There's five, there's five asset managers who control $30 trillion of assets. Okay. BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, and Morgan Stanley. $30 trillion. When all those guys come in and they get one or 2%, they're not going to get 1% and tell the world. They're going to get 3%, 5% and tell the world. <laughs> And then everybody's going to be going. I mean, that's Insane. just the way I see it happening. And people so. got to realize that if they buy a trillion, you know, if 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 a trillion comes into this market, it doesn't move the market cap by a trillion. It moves There's it friction. by a whole There's lot more friction. than that. It's called trading friction. They've yeah. got to find the price that that people are willing to sell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. There was another topic I wanted to, to hit with you here, and I know we've we've covered a lot of uh, space here and I, I'm looking at the time. I want to talk funny. about the real estate market with you because yeah. my Lord, this just looks like a total disaster. Brewing. Yeah. It's, it's incoming disaster incoming. Right now. Is I this, don't think it, it's going to be, you think it's, it's worse it, than 08? No, because, because I don't, because people aren't levered the way they were in 08. Mm. I mean, you remember you were in, you, back in 08, there wasn't Uber, but you, you, you were taking a cab in San Francisco, mm -hmm. somebody was, you know, the cab driver was like, oh yeah, I own six houses. You yeah. know, like, wow. I well, mean, and the values whoa, have appreciated you know? so much in nominal terms just in the past year alone that that puts people way further in the green. So here's yeah. the problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, you just hit on it. That's going to be the problem, right? Because, yeah. because okay, it, the housing prices have to fall 50%. I think we talked about this earlier on the show. They have to fall fifty percent to have the same to have the same mortgage payment as you did two years ago because houses price house prices went up so much. Yeah, and so did interest rates. Right, interest rates have doubled, and so housing prices. So they they have to come down fifty percent just to have the same right. But the problem is they're coming down. Demand's coming. The demand's coming off. It's just falling out of bed. Right, there's no demand right now in so many cities. Right, so. The problem is, as those prices come down, people's equity that they are expecting to be sitting on as part of their personal balance sheet is evaporating. They may have borrowed off of it because mm -hmm. they've got lines of credit. You know, they've got home equity lines of credit that they're borrowing off of that are now upside down mm -hmm. because you know they they took on extra hundred grand at the wrong time or whatever it is, and so that's going to start squeezing people's credit. So now you're watching the credit, the people's credit card debt tick up back up to the 2008 levels, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so here we are again. I don't think it's going to be as bad in the housing market as it was back then because, I mean, look who's buying up all these houses, mm -hmm. BlackRock and Berkshire Hathaway. All they're going to do is rent them out, right? And they can sit mm -hmm. on them forever, right? Mm -hmm. So... I think it's I think it's just a different structural problem, but it is a big enough problem that again it's going to cause more stagflation, where you've got inflation of goods that people need, but a deflation of of their assets at, at a time when you know the Fed is raising rates. It's just 
it's a recipe for more pain. Yeah. Period. What are your thoughts on it? I'd be interested to know. Yeah, no, I think the I think the thing that is at least a little bit of the saving grace is I think you got a lot of people that uh, you know, if they had twenty percent down or thirty percent down already paid into the house and the house doubled in value because housing prices are going bananas everywhere, that's gonna help ease the burden a little bit. Now, my concern is for people that are new home buyers or have to move because of work or whatever. And they're just not going to be able to buy as much house for the price that they can afford coming out of it. Yep. So that's it, it's it's a noose that once you drive those rates, especially you do it uh, systematically over a forty year period of time, is you continue to tighten those yields down to nothing, and you get everybody locked in with with not much down on the house. They're there. Like they're going to have to, they're going to have to stay there because as, as rates rise and based on the, the inflationary environment that I kind of expect in the coming decade, I just don't know that. Yeah. All the people are moving from, okay. From San Francisco to Austin. Austin's not cheap. That is not a cheap city. Yeah. Right. So now you're, you're, you have, of course there's, you can get a whole lot more house in Austin than you can in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. but like you just said, it, it precludes them from going and taking a mortgage at six, 7% now mm-hmm, on, on a house that they is now going to be comparable to the one they're leaving. Mm-hmm. So what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. So it does. It restricts movement. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it, it, it's the next, it is, it's something that hasn't been talked about much, but you're starting to hear people chirp about it. And I think I, I, you can sense it's just another thing. We need a, we need a few more data points there. I want to see a few yeah. more data points to see where this thing's going and how it's really affecting people's bottom line and where and where the consumer credit is going. How much mm-hmm. it, it may be affecting that. People that have locked in very low interest rates and they don't plan on moving. I mean, they're going to be huge beneficiaries of it if they can continue to hold down a job and and make their payments because as you well you're deflating know, you're you're do, you're deflating away your debt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was, yeah, I mean, I was at, at the bank the other day because I had to send a wire. So I had to sit down with a banker and fill out like 17 pages of paperwork. I've literally sent 250 wires with this bank, but I'm going to do it every time. <laughs> so I go and fill out all the paperwork. And uh, this young banker, you know, he's just a kid, but he's like, well, what do you, what do you suggest I invest in? Whether Because he asked me what I do. And, you know, and I was talking to him about it. And he's like, well, first I want to pay down my mortgage. I was like, I go, what? Back up the train. <laughs> what? Why? why? He's like, oh, it's just, I just feel like I should own it. I shouldn't have that debt. Shouldn't have. I was yeah. like, you understand as the dollar inflates that you're paying off your house with cheaper dollars. Yeah. He's like, I never really thought about it that way. This is a, this is a, a banker, you the, know, the Dave Ramsey, really thought about it that the way. Dave Ramsey, uh, pay it back as fast as possible and all that stuff. I think it's, I think it, I don't want to bash Dave for trying to get people to get yeah. their finances under control, but in this Super particular, yeah. yeah, in this yeah. particular scenario, like this is, I think I, I wouldn't agree with that. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. Get your, get your credit card debt off. Yeah, exactly. Pay that down. Make sure you have no credit card debt, especially now. Cause that yeah. is ballooning. Yeah. So. That, did you see that yeah. chart over 20%, I guess, is the national average on it. It's insane. APR. Ow. It's insane. Yeah, I didn't see that chart. Yeah, it makes sense. 
James, yeah. we got to do this more often. I thoroughly enjoyed the chat with you. Likewise, and, man. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be, I can only imagine what the coming quarter is going to bring. Holy moly. God, God only knows. <laughs> Hang on tight. I don't profess to know, you know? No, <laughs> I know. I mean, just, you, can... you know, I just look like, I'm just looking around for where I, where you may see the risk. Where's the systematic risk? Yeah. So, and you do the same thing. So I like talking yeah. to you too, man. Yeah. We'll so. see where it goes, but. We'll definitely uh, do something here in the future. And boy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to highlight? I know you you work mm-hmm. with different organizations, or you want to maybe yeah. I, well, you you just had you just had us on uh, with, you know with our Looking Glass Education platform. You can find it on my Twitter profile in my in my bio, and that's the thing that uh, that Greg Foss kind of pulled me into. Seb Bunny, Dasbia, you've got Pleb Music on there, Dahlia Platt, uh, Jason Sansoni is a surgeon in in wisconsin these guys are super smart guys and gals they're so smart i just i i basically i'm i'm the old you know the old guy with greg we just help with a little bit of, of advisory but um greg's a, he he helped them really kickstart it so he's, he's mm-hmm. been a very important part i don't want to be little that but da, but the the guys that that are running it um they're awesome and so this is just a simple platform uh, educational platform for your listeners if you want to know more about money, how money works, the system, and how it all kind of leads to Bitcoin, it's not Bitcoin heavy. It's really money heavy and, you know, and the history and, and how, and it's super simple and it's in easy modules to go through, just like a, a coursework online. I highly recommend it. That's mm-hmm. the that's the one thing. And then part of that is my informationist newsletter. Mm-hmm. So I write a newsletter every Sunday, um, comes out that I take one complicated financial topic and simplify it. Super, mm-hmm. super simple for anybody to understand. And I love doing that. I think it, I hate the fact that, that my industry is so opaque. And I hate the fact that people are scared of it. They don't, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to, they hear all this jargon and they don't know what it means. And it just goes right past them and it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's a great thing for people and it's free. It, I, just, I just really like doing it. It's like one page, boom, knockout. Like what's a yield curve control? Yeah. Or you know, what's the Fed put? Or so I do that, and that's it. James Lavish on Twitter. You know where I am. James, that's thanks it. so much for making time, and I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Honored to be on here, and I look forward to the next time, Preston. Absolutely. See you. See you. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for "We Study Billionaires." The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.